As a child, I used to spend the nights lying out in the yard, staring up into the magnificent night sky above. Since we lived a decent distance away from the city, the nights plunged us into a brilliant darkness, allowing us to see and identify thousands of bright stars, each of them a dot on the black canvas of the universe. I used to wonder what fantastical worlds existed among the stars in the vastness of our universe, whether or not they contained life, what they looked like, and how they thought. Were they like us, with dreams, plans, and hopes? Are they friendly, looking to build a society among the stars? Or would they rather see us wiped from the universe's existence? As I tell you this, I no longer wonder about these things. I do not seek to find life among the various celestial bodies hanging in our cold universe because I know the answer to all of these questions. Because as it turns out, the first person to make contact with extraterrestrial life far away from the safety of Earth would be me. Ground control, we have visual confirmation of 16 Psyche, preparing for the final approach. I spoke into the radio, trying to hide the nervousness building up in my chest. A colossal asteroid hung before us, gently gliding through the empty void of space. It measured more than 200 kilometers in diameter, meaning it was 20 times the size of the rock that wiped out the dinosaurs. Though it had been discovered way back in 1852, we would be the first to actually touch down on its surface, a first in the history of space exploration. Landing site D identified. Surface seems clear. I spoke into the radio. At a distance of half a billion kilometers away from Earth, it would take more than 20 minutes for any message to reach ground control, and another 20 for their messages to return to us. It essentially meant that real-time communication was an impossible feat. Any messages we sent out was more for prosperity than anything else. The celestial body seemed more intimidating up close. We were further away from the sun than ever before, hidden in absolute darkness. Though I had often imagined what empty space would look like, the loneliness accompanying it was something I couldn't even have dreamed of. Even aboard a mining vessel with six other astronauts and two cosmonauts, I felt utterly alone. Jesus, that thing is massive, Jordan said as he joined me in the cockpit. Strangely beautiful, though. Yeah, beautiful, I repeated, though it wasn't the word I would have chosen as its descriptor. You sure we can land it there, though? Looks kind of rough, he continued as he inspected the designated landing zone. Landing won't be the problem, I said confidently. It's taking off again that worries me. Sounds like a problem for our future selves. He joked as he patted me on the back. Jordan was a godsend aboard Helios III, a brilliant man without an ounce of self-doubt. Though he often came across as arrogant, it seemed to have a calming effect on the crew. Even the commander knew better than to put him in his place. How's Commander Slayton doing? I asked. Prepping the crew for touchdown. He'll be back here in a minute to oversee the landing procedures. For now, let's just enjoy this view. It's gonna get dark down there. He was right. We'd be touching down in a deep valley with a lot of flat surface. Though it had proven ideal for accessing the core of the asteroid, it pretty much isolated us from the sun. 
we'd be working in the depths of absolute night with no guarantee that we'd ever get back home and feel the warmth of the sun on our skin ever again. Our mission was little more than a test. We were to bring back five tons of raw materials, mainly platinum. Our secondary mission was to set up the initial mine on the asteroid. Another crew would only be able to return years later to set up an automated workstation. It was a high-risk operation. But if our mission was a success, we'd be able to tap into a quintillion-dollar gold mine. The radios came back to life in a staticky mess. This is ground control. We advise Sector F. Go ahead. The message was mostly unintelligible, but our mission statement was clear. We were landing on Psyche 16. We'll have total radio silence once we land anyway. Whatever they have to say, it won't help us now, Jordan said. By then, Commander Slayton had joined us in the cockpit. He stared expectantly at the big rock hovering before us. In less than half an hour, we'd be sitting on its surface. All green, I said. We're ready to initiate the landing sequence. Excellent. The crew is strapped in the back of the hangar. You're leading this one, Abel he said. Jordan nodded at me, letting me know he'd follow my lead without complaints. You should join the crew, Commander. We'll take it from here, I said. Once Commander Slayton had seated himself, we got to work on getting Helios 3 safely down on the ground. We'd arrive from the asteroid's rear, safely distanced from the particle-filled tail. If we damaged the vessel upon impact, chances were slim that we'd ever get back into space. Landing site marked. Touchdown in three minutes, Jordan said. Looking smooth, operating the landing gear, I said. Roger that. The ship started to vibrate as it approached the surface, affected by the low but present gravity of the asteroid. 60 seconds, Jordan called out. Without a solid runway to descend down upon, we had to rely on our thrusters for sufficient braking capacity. Thruster C and D, ready, Jordan said. Fire them. We were pushed forward in our seats as we decelerated. 30 seconds. We were slowing down, getting closer to the surface with each passing second. While the valley was large, we were moving faster than expected. If we didn't slow down quickly, we might crash into the cliff sides at its end. 15 seconds. Jordan yelled. Fire thrusters A and B. I ordered. Five, four, three. I braced myself, staring at the dark ground below. Without attitude and altitude readings, I wouldn't have been able to tell how close we actually were. Dust hit our windows as we got closer to the ground, further impeding our visibility. Two, one. Our vessel shook violently as the landing gear finally made contact with the surprisingly hard ground below. The dust covering the surface had appeared thick, but was a pathetically thin layer barely slowing us down. Activate tertiary thrusters E and F, I yelled as we slid along the ground. I was thrown forward into my seat, my face almost hitting the dashboard in front of me. The vessel came to an abrupt but much-needed halt. Silence filled the cockpit for a few seconds as we tried to process the fact that we just landed on an untouched celestial body. Holy shit! Jordan let out. Beyond the dust covering our windscreen, we could see little more than darkness and a ground barely illuminated by the light our spacecraft emitted. System check? I asked, breaking through our state of disbelief. We're good. All systems are green. 
Jordan practically grasped. Get the anchors down. We're standing on an incline. Once we'd firmly secured Helios to Psyche 16 surface, we were finally able to rejoin our crew members. Alpha Group had already started preparing the drills, led by Antonov as the team leader. I would join his crew, while Commander Slayton remained with Zeta Group to maintain the ship and oversee the operation. Good landing, my friend. We might actually be able to make it home alive, Antonov greeted as he saw me. As next in command, he took a much friendlier approach to the leadership role in comparison to Slayton, who liked to keep some personal distance from his crew. Alpha Group consisted of five members with two buggies, each equipped with drills and building material. We'd landed next to a particularly porous cliff wall, ideal to dig into, filled to the brim with platinum, gold, and silicone. I suited up in my IEVA Mark IV, a particularly uncomfortable piece of technology meant to withstand the potentially life-threatening clouds of sand and rock filling the vacuum around the asteroid. Made out of various composite metals, it weighed too much to be viable on Earth, or even the moon, but on Psyche 16, it was merely uncomfortable. At least we'd be kept safe from any potential threats on the surface. Ready to make history? Antonov asked as gleefully as ever. We gathered within the vehicles, two asteroid rendezvous excavation spacecrafts, colloquially called Ares. Antonov took two astronauts alongside him while I was seated by the main drill operator, Luis Carvalho. There we sat as the hangar door slowly opened, ready to set foot on the dark rocks before us. It's nerve wracking, isn't it? Luis asked. Which part? The fear that we'll be torn to shred by rocks, being crushed in the mines, or the fact that we're half a billion kilometers away from Earth? I said in a half joking manner. Yeah, those things. It is. It's horrifying. Yet, it's all I've longed for my entire life. Now that I'm here, I can't quite believe we're actually, well, here, I explained. Finally out beyond the reach of mankind, bringing our species further into the future. I wish we could see more than just rocks, but this is a damn good start. And the money ain't too bad either, huh? Luis joked. Can't complain. I chuckled. Then we drove onto the hard surface, the wheels spinning for a moment on the dry dust before making proper contact with the rocks below. It was a bumpy ride into the darkness, with nothing to guide our way except for a few light beams. While they were powerful enough to show the way, the dust floating around severely hindered their helpfulness. Our site is two clicks away from our position. Should hold the largest reachable platinum mine in the sector, Louis said over the radio. I had dreamed about an unobstructed view of the millions of stars above, seen from a place untouched by polluting light. But on this asteroid, everything was obscured by thick, unyielding dust. If it weren't for the fact that I'd seen it moments before, I almost couldn't have known that we were in space. We're getting closer. I can smell the money. Antonov joked over the radio. Once we get back home, I will invite you all out for drinks. Ruse about dig. Please. Luis interjected. Diamante tequila is what we need. We spent a couple of minutes listing expensive drinks from our various home countries, trying to brighten the mood. We were all excited to be on a historic mission, but there was an undeniable tinge of nervousness polluting the spirit of our crew. The Ares vehicles were slow, only able to move at a few miles per hour. 
The limited visibility also didn't help, and we were forced to move at a snail's pace. Just moving the mere two clicks from our ship would take an hour. How far is this damn place? Luis asked. We're here, two minutes away. Antonov shot back. Well, are we here, or are we two minutes out? Luis asked, half sarcastically. One minute. Then our vehicles came to a slow stop, scraping along the ground in the low-gravity environment. Radio communication fell silent for a moment as we scanned our surroundings. Through the dust, we could just barely see the wall we were supposed to drill into. Wait, that can't be right, Luis said. What are you saying? I asked. There's a hole in the cliff wall. A hole? Yes, like a cave, he explained. Caves should not form naturally on asteroids. They were products of dissolved rock pulled away by millennia of rainfall. Unless the asteroid was at some point attached to a larger body with naturally occurring water, something or someone had dug the cave out. This is good, Antonov chimed in. Easier access to the valuable stuff. A lot of time will be saved if we start here. No, we should find a different spot to dig, Luis argued. We don't know what caused this formation. We will let our trusted commander decide. Antonov contacted Slayton back at the ship for further instructions. On one hand, digging into an already existing cave would make our job far easier. But the absurdity of its presence didn't sit right with many among the crew. Something was wrong. We just didn't know what. Proceed, we heard Slayton say over the radio. Confirm its structural integrity, then find a spot to set the drills up. Roger that, Antonov responded gleefully. Leonard, Sandra, unload the drill. Luis, Abel, you are coming with me for prospection. We exited our vehicles, touching down on foot for the first time. I felt my feet sink slightly into the layer of dust. Though the asteroid definitely exerted some gravity, it almost felt as if we were gliding across its surface. This is so weird, Luis said as we started walking. I feel like if I jumped too high, I'd float into space. We followed Antonov into the cave opening. It was tall, albeit too slender for our vehicles to fit within. The drills would have to be moved on trolleys from the cave's exterior. Still, it left an ample amount of working space. Within the cave, the atmosphere seemed to clear up ever so slightly. We now had a much longer reach with our flashlights, able to inspect the walls of the cave. They were rough and sharp, not akin to caves formed by flowing water, but rather as if someone had dug chunks out. Nevertheless, the cave would, without a doubt, stay upright, even if we attempted to drill into the walls. Now all we needed was a vein of ore to dig into. How far does this go? I mumbled to myself as I tried to find its end. We'd walked for 10 minutes, still not nearing an exit, nor was the cave starting to narrow. Here! Luis yelled, jumping up as he pointed to a fissure in the wall. Platinum! Sure enough, an exposed section of the wall had revealed a massive ore of platinum. Based solely on what we could see on the wall, the ore was worth millions upon millions. Fuck yes! Antonov chimed in. We dig here! In the span of a single moment, the eeriness of the situation had been replaced by the overwhelming joy of success. Though we were still in the early stages of our mission, it could not have gone better. 
We brought several transport trolleys alongside one of the drills before proceeding to dig into the wall. Without gravity risking our equipment getting crushed, we swiftly tore through the walls, loading chunks of highly valuable minerals into the vehicles. Sandra and Leonard were forced to walk back and forth between the vehicles and the mining site, carrying millions worth of platinum, while the rest of us eagerly kept digging. With the promise of a massive payday, they didn't seem to mind. A few hours passed like that, with only a couple of trips to refill our oxygen tanks at the Ares, before we discovered something unexpected within the walls of the cave. Hey, you seeing this? Luis asked. I joined him, inspecting the wall behind a chunk we'd just removed. Surely enough, we dug our way through the ore, hitting a seemingly solid rock wall. But something else was stuck just below its surface, something that didn't make the slightest bit of sense. Is that a... Louise began. A fossil? I finished. Antonov, come have a look at this. He was just as dumbfounded as we were, staring at the bizarre formation within the rocks. It carried a segmented, slender form akin to a millipede. Though the similarities ended there, with limbs extending far away from its center mass, expanding in size at their ends. Most of it was still hidden within the wall. But what we could see looked like a mixture between plant and flesh. We explained the situation as best we could to Commander Slayton, before debating whether or not we'd bring the discovery on board Helios 3. We might just have discovered extraterrestrial life. And though it wasn't part of our mission statement, its discovery was far too valuable to simply be left behind. Slayton agreed with the sentiment but only under the condition that the fossil was brought on board completely isolated. Despite working in a near vacuum-like atmosphere, we didn't know what kind of pathogens the fossil could harbor. We carefully dug around its borders, extracting a large chunk of solid rock to bring on board. With that, we ended the first day, having lost substantial amounts of profit due to the discovery. We used a body bag covered in a radiation pocket to transport the fossil, an impromptu isolation device, barely large enough for proper containment. With only one biologist on board and no archeologists, we had little to work with. Our biologist, Sofia Makarova, had been brought on board to study low gravity's effect on plant-based life. Slayton decided to store the specimen within one of the airlocks, meaning it could be safely ejected in case of contagion. It was the closest thing we had to a proper isolation chamber, seeing as our vessel hadn't been designed to study extraterrestrial life. Further analysis would take place back in properly equipped facilities on Earth. What was important was to keep the environment as oxygen-starved as possible, as well as mimicking the temperature to the best of our abilities. That night was filled with an unnatural sense of unease. Without a sun to regulate our circadian cycle, the time of day didn't feel all that important. If not for the clock telling us the actual time, we would have been driven to madness. I lay awake wondering what kind of life we'd stumbled upon. Was it life driven purely by instinct? Or did it contain signs of intelligence and intentional behavior? How had it ended up on an asteroid? Was it dangerous? When morning arrived, we were all quickly rushed to our vehicles. The time we'd lost the day prior meant we'd be forced to rush and catch up. Even with the discovery of an actual 
biological entity. The company was run based on capitalistic greed. Any loss in revenue had to be explained. Slayton worked on a message to be sent back to ground control, but it couldn't be sent before we took off away from the asteroid. Little was said in those early morning hours, and though no one spoke openly about it, I knew where our minds were at. We ran mostly on autopilot, working together as a well-oiled machine, but in silence. Hours passed as we loaded up the vehicles with our much-desired platinum, filling each of them in record time. It wouldn't be until midday before the silence was finally shattered by a frantic Antonov calling for all of our attention. This cannot be real. What the hell is this place? He said, mostly to himself. We joined his side, where our drilling had just caused a whole layer of ore to fall off the cave wall. Behind it, we found a dozen more fossils fused with the dark rock. They were all similar to the fossil we'd brought on board, just varying in size and number of limbs. There were no visible ends or beginnings to the creatures, but rather a mass of plant-like flesh encased in stone. Despite the brilliantly horrific nature of the creatures themselves, that's not what scared us the most. No, because the rock they had been fused into didn't match the surrounding minerals. It looked like the fossils had been carried from a different constellation of stone not found on the asteroid. It was as if someone had put them there. We are not digging here anymore, Antonov ordered. Agreed, Luis said. I couldn't fault them for wanting to cease mining operations. The risk of biological contamination had become too great a risk for us to continue. But in the end, only Commander Slayton could make that decision. I will call Slayton. Feel free to stay here with these monsters, Antonov said as he headed for the cave exit. We all followed none wishing to stay behind with the strange creatures trapped in the wall. Slayton, are you there? Antonov called as we neared the exit. No response. Slayton, answer the fucking radio! He called again. Still nothing. We had established contact with the ship, but only silence was heard from the other end. Either they were experiencing communication errors, or something had happened back on board Helios. Anyone? Please respond, Antonov continued, getting more desperate with each call. Fuck this! We are going back! Everyone, get to the vehicles! Fear arose among the crew as we boarded our vehicles. Luckily, our extensive training kept us from freezing in place despite the panic. A few staticky sounds emerged from our radios, coming from Helios 3. Slate! The thing! Out! Dead! The broken message said. It was Jordan's voice, and he sounded hurt. Though the message was barely intelligible, it was enough to warn us of the extreme danger of returning to Helios. What are we going to do? We can't go back there, Louise said. Do you have another idea? Antonov shot back. Where are we going to go, huh? People might be hurt, but we have to help them, regardless of the risk. Sandra interjected. Hurt? They are dead. You heard the message? Louise said. Fear evident in his voice. Jordan isn't. We pushed the Ares vehicles to their limit. But even then, their wheels couldn't propel us forward much without the gravity necessary to do so. On the way, we attempted to establish radio contact with Helios to no avail. The comms were dead, returning an unending mess of static. An hour would pass before we finally reached the station. The hangar had already opened and been lowered, 
allowing us quick access into the airlocks. Once inside, we remained in the vehicles, checking the area for any sign of hostile entities. Fatir! Antonov ordered as he exited his vehicle. He walked over to one of the locked containers in the corner of the ship, typed in an override code to open it, revealing a handful of weapons stored inside. I didn't realize the ship was armed, Luis gasped. My guess is you weren't supposed to, Sandra chimed in. With a rifle and a flamethrower in hand, Antonov went from door to door, clearing the area before allowing the rest of us to exit our vehicles. Slayton did not touch the guns, Antonov said. That is a very bad sign. What now? I asked. Grab weapons. Follow me, Antonov ordered. From the hangar, there were three hallways leading further into the ship. The main door led to the bridge, while the other two led to the laboratories and barracks, respectively. The labs have been locked down, Leonard said. It does not matter. We are going to the bridge, Antonov said. From the bridge, we could monitor and control the rest of the station, as well as track the crew via their neural implants. If anyone was still alive, our best shot at helping them would be through there. Antonov and Sandra both had extensive military training, leaving them to lead us towards the bridge. We held our breaths, listening for all and any sounds. Other than the life support systems humming in the background and the sounds of our light footsteps, we were drowning in silence. Within the bridge, we were met with a blood-covered panel, chunks of what could only be human flesh and mangled comms. Jordan sat on the floor, hidden behind his chair, seemingly unconscious. Abel, check on him, Antonov ordered. I did as commanded while the rest of the team secured the wound. Jordan had a chunk missing from his flesh, with a gaping wound bleeding profusely. No major organs were affected. However, one artery seemed to have been damaged. He needed immediate medical attention if he wanted to stand a chance. Jordan, wake up. Come on. I said as I slapped him gently on the cheek. It hurts. He groaned, still not opening his eyes. It's not that bad. I lied. We're going to fix you right up. Avil, he said as his eyes finally opened to meet mine. They're dead. Slayton, Lance. What about Sophia? I asked. She led it away and gave me a chance to call for help, but not before it took a chunk out of me and smashed the comms. We should have known, Avil. We should have known it was alive. Jordan fell unconscious once more, just as the rest of the crew got to work on searching for any other survivors. Sophia's alive! Leonard let out in shock. She has herself locked inside the laboratories. Do you see the creature? I asked. No, but I'll keep looking. We'll take Jordan to the medical bay, I said. Lock down the bridge as soon as we exit. If that thing escapes, we don't want it ending up here. We'll get Sophia out on the way. Again, Antonov and Sandra took the lead, guiding us towards the medical bay at the middle of the ship. On the way, there was an intersection leading to the laboratories, where Sophia had locked herself inside. As we passed, we found her standing by the locked section, safely secured behind polycarbonate glass walls. Sophia! Antonov yelled, his words not reaching beyond the glass. I didn't have a choice! She responded back over the radio. Antonov rushed to the glass, using the local radio to talk back to her. We have to get you out of there, he said. No, that's what he wants you to do, she said somberly. 
It wants us to. It's smart. And it's learning fast. This was the only way to keep it contained. I had... Before Sophia could finish her sentence, something dropped down from the ventilation shaft behind her. It was the fossil we'd brought on board. Alive in its horrific glory. It crawled towards her at impressive speeds, using its many limbs to drag and pull its segmented body along the floor. She didn't even have time to react before the creature hit her body. In an instant, it wrapped its seemingly fragile limbs around her arms, cutting through them in a second. Sophia tried to scream in agony, but one of the tendrils had already dug its way into her throat. Despite their slim, limp appearance, they were razor sharp and met little resistance as it cut through her flesh. No! Antonov yelled in desperation, knowing he could do nothing to help. Skin, muscle, and bone was dissected with surgical precision as the creature enveloped itself around her. Despite the scene, there was a surprisingly little amount of blood visible. It looked as if the creature absorbed most of it. Even the cut flesh seemed to dissolve upon contact with it. Sophia was dead. The creature was loose within the locked-off section, free to roam around and wreak havoc upon the ship. Though it had no way of reaching us, we didn't feel safe. We were trapped with a monstrosity, and our only option would be to take off from the asteroid and head back into space, knowing that we would have to give our lives before allowing that thing to reach Earth. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy these stories, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and check out some more of my episodes here.